Hello and welcome to the second episode of Words on Wood, a podcast exploring forests, timber, the environment and their connections to design and architecture. I'm one of your hosts, Christina Rapatsky, and this episode we're going to be looking at carbon sequestration. And I'm Ollie Stratford, your other host. Now, I think carbon sequestration is a really good topic because it's one of those things that lots of people have heard about, but they may be a little bit fuzzy on the details. So if someone asked me for a quick, clear definition of what carbon sequestration is, I'm not sure how well I'd do if I didn't have time to prepare, actually. I mean, I could tell you that it's in the terrain of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but if I was put on the spot, I might struggle to be more specific than that. Right, well, on that topic, I actually wanted to play you a quick clip from an interview that I did with Andrew War. He's the co-founder of War Thistleton, which is a London-based architecture practice that specialises in engineered timber buildings. So I wanted to talk to him about carbon sequestration and this came up. Carbon sequestration. You know, you've got all these crazy ideas that we're going to get carbon, we're going to suck it out of the sky with a great big hoover and put it in the ocean or something. Yeah, I don't know if I'd have had a great big hoover in my definition. Well, you know, he's not actually that far off. He's talking there about geoengineering, which is this idea that we can intervene through technology to help mitigate against climate crisis. So I actually know a little about geoengineering because it's something people have been talking about since at least the 1960s. So you have all these wild schemes to engineer methods of reflecting the sun's rays away from the earth to reduce heating. And it all gets pretty wacky in space age. So imagine cosmic mirrors and shields, or injecting sulfates into the stratosphere from planes to reflect sunlight and mimic the cooling effect that volcanoes have when they erupt. It's pretty out there, as you say. Uh, And I think they're also just masking the problem of climate change in some senses. And a lot of people have pointed that out. And those things you mentioned are what's known as solar radiation management. But there's actually another school of techniques called carbon dioxide removal or CDR, which is a bit more widely accepted, perhaps. So CDR is the idea of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and extracting it and storing it away. So, speaking in the broadest of brushstrokes, it is a little bit like that Hoover idea Andrew brought up. Right, but guess what also um, captures carbon and stores it away without any technological intervention whatsoever? (laughs) I can see where this is going. (laughs) Right, so all these geoengineering ideas are all well and good, but Andrew points out that... Actually... Mother Nature does this amazing thing with a tree where you suck in carbon dioxide and you keep the carbon in the tree and you release oxygen into the atmosphere. I mean, it's perfect. So this perfect form of carbon capture that Andrew was talking about, it's basically photosynthesis, uh, which is something we've all hopefully learnt about in school. But still... I wanted to speak to someone who could really talk us through the science of it and how that relates to carbon sequestration or carbon capture. I am Galina Churkina and I am a guest senior scientist uh, at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. Enter Galina Churkina, a climate scientist and expert in the carbon cycles of forests and grasslands. Ah, the perfect person then. Yes, exactly. And she gave me a great refresher of the basics. Forests capture carbon through the process of photosynthesis. So this is basically the major process through which the carbon taken up and then the tree basically 
redistributes this carbon that is stored first in the leaves, because the green leaves have taken up the carbon, it distributes three different parts of the plant. So it goes to the stem, to the branches, to the roots, and every year the, the plant becomes bigger and bigger, because this carbon is accumulating in the, in the tree. And this is basically the, the, how the, the trees capture the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and how they store it. Okay, so nearly all plants do this, but are there any types of tree or forest that are especially good at absorbing carbon? Yeah, there are actually. The broadleaf forests, they um, growing in the warm climates, especially in the tropics, they, their carbon uptake rates are higher than, um, let's say, of a pine forest somewhere in, uh, in the mid-latitudes or in the boreal areas. Right. So in terms of its efficiency with photosynthesis, there's actually a reason why people call the Amazon the Earth's lungs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But there's actually another really interesting factor when it comes to carbon uptake that I hadn't quite realised. There is a difference also between uh, younger forests and the older one. So the younger one, they uh, take up much more faster, they uptake carbon much faster because they grow, they actively grow. And as the trees mature, the carbon uptake becomes much slower. Oh, that makes sense. So a young forest is going to be absorbing more carbon as it's growing, whereas a mature one is going to be more stable. Exactly. And that's actually a very good argument for cultivating and harvesting wood. Do you remember in the last episode we talked about coppicing and kind of keeping the tree in a juvenile state? But presumably this isn't an argument against mature forests, right? Oh, no, no, definitely not. So while mature forests have slightly slower rates of carbon capture than young forests, they're still really, really good. In fact, Galina says that recent studies on mature forests have surprised scientists because older forests have been shown to absorb more carbon than previous modelling has suggested. Uh, I'll let her explain why that's the case. What plays a role is the concentration of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the climate. Also what plays a role actually is the amount of nutrients in the soil, especially the nitrogen. So right now we have more carbon in the atmosphere, more CO2. So even old forests uptake carbon at a pretty high rate, actually surprisingly high rate for, for us, for scientists. Oh, so forests have actually adapted to take up more CO2 because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere? Yeah, that's what I think she's saying, which is extraordinary. So where does Galena take this research? What kind of practical applications can it have? Well, she's actually looking into whether you can embed some of these insights into architecture and urbanism. So if trees lock up carbon, you can use the timber produced from those trees to build with. That way you're storing it. This idea that the timber buildings, they can become carbon stores, it has been in the air. And I, I did also the first paper where I estimated the carbon storage in the human settlements of the U.S. And the U.S. has a lot of wooden construction, but it's mostly light-framed houses. These are not the massive timber buildings. These are kind of single-family houses. You might have noticed Galena mentioned massive timber buildings there. It didn't pass unnoticed, no. Very good. So massive timber is different to the types of wood frame constructions that I think most people are familiar with, you know, those skeletal timber frame buildings that you imagine maybe going up in the Midwest. So 
massive timber or mass timber is much more substantial. You'll be surprised to hear. It's a type of wood product where layers of wood are fixed together to form large structural elements. So there's different ways of doing that, be it through glue, nails or dowels. But basically it means you're engineering the wood until you have these huge building blocks. Which presumably can then be used in place of concrete and steel in construction. Exactly. Which is the focus of a recent study by Galena. This study basically is looking at at the potential of buildings and construction sector to mitigate climate change and for the transition to this timber buildings. It's looking at the potential of timber buildings and timber construction as basically means to, to mitigate climate change. So it's something of a feasibility study? Yes, of a kind. So Galena looked at the infrastructure that will be needed to support the expected growth in urban populations over the next 30 years. We know that urbanisation is this huge trend. And then she mapped out a few different scenarios in terms of building buildings for all of those people. For the transition to timber scenarios, we had... Uh, three different pathways, basically with a small amount of timber, just 10% of the future buildings that will be built with timber, 50%, and in the kind of the most extreme scenarios that 90% of the future buildings uh, will be designed and constructed with timber. And then we estimated how much uh, CO2 will be saved if we transition to timber in all those scenarios relative to the steel and concrete and how much carbon will be stored in these buildings. At the higher end, is that even possible? I mean, is there sufficient lumber to support that kind of scenario? That's a really good question, and it was actually a question that Galena was asking as well. And that's a very important part of our paper, that we not just calculate, okay, we reduce so much CO2, we store so much carbon, but actually is there wood for this timber available from the forest? And if this wood will be available on a sustainable basis, And the answer? At the global level, basically, it looks like we do have enough timber that would cover the future demand for timber. At least the estimates that we found for the future timber harvest on a sustainable basis, they are pretty optimistic. Yeah, so this is really good news. Now, Galina stresses that her calculations are made on the basis of an aggregated picture. So there's still work to be done mapping the regional picture more precisely. But the general outlook is good. I mean, if if we want to build more buildings using timber, there seems to be a potential to do so. We need to use the trend, kind of the the existing trend, the trend of urbanization. We need buildings. And kind of combining this with storing carbon is kind of logical. I think it's more logical than uh, trying to invent a technology to suck up the CO2 and pump it under the ground. Which is a real shame, because I was quite heavily into that idea of a carbon hoover. Uh, Best to put it on the back burner for now, then. I think there's clearly a much more natural and obvious solution here. So why aren't we building more with massive timber, then, if it's so good? And if the, the materials are available to us? Building with structural timber feels kind of pre-modern, I suppose. So steel and concrete really came to define construction in the 20th century, and I don't know whether we've been able to leave that track yet. Yeah, and I think we've we've come to the point in this episode where we really need to talk about steel and concrete. Cement and steel basically 
are the most energy kind of hungry <laughs> materials and the energy demand for those for production of those materials dominates the energy demand of all other materials worldwide. So she's talking here about what a lot of people refer to as embodied carbon. So the carbon emitted in the process of producing materials. There are emissions from basically energy production that is needed to produce materials. But also there is CO2 emitted from the chemical reactions that are associated with the production of both materials. So even if cement production or the steel production will become, will use only renewable energy in the future, if they manage somehow to do that, there will be still CO2 emitted from the chemical reactions. So she says a tiny amount of carbon is actually stored in steel and concrete too, but it doesn't outweigh the massive amounts of carbon released in the making of those materials. With cement, of course, there is a, a problem with sand mining because the, you need sand to produce cement. And uh, the sand mostly comes from the coastal areas. It becomes a kind of um, limited resource, a scarce resource. This deposits of the sand that can be used in the cement making is kind of depleting. But also this sand mining, it disturbs the aquatic ecosystems. And the aquatic ecosystems have also algaes different um, like uh, phytoplankton and all these uh, organisms uh, they also uptake carbon so there is also aquatic carbon uptake and once you disturb the ecosystem it will not uptake as much carbon if it, it uptake carbon at all yeah okay this sounds bad yeah it's not great i think we all have the sense of steel and concrete not being the best when it comes to their environmental impact but Galina I think has really hammered it home. Steel and concrete are basically construction materials that rely on extraction. Right and so it doesn't really matter if the production of those materials uses clean energy or whatever they still have those inherently high levels of embodied carbon. Yeah, precisely. And this is where I want to bring in Andrew Waugh again, the architect, because he's rallying against this reliance in the construction industry on steel and concrete. And he's totally committed to building only in mass timber. So in fact, his firm, Waugh Thistleton, is building high and mid-rise timber buildings, mass timber buildings. They've been real pioneers of that. So he's kind of doing what Galena and her collaborators in this new study are, are calling for. So anyway, he's a bit annoyed at public perceptions of steel and concrete. You know, you're getting a lot of people running around saying concrete and steel are really carbon, are really low carbon and carbon friendly. I mean, this is absolute balderdash is the nicest word I can think of. But it's, I mean, it's obviously completely bonkers, right, to compare something that you... You know, you dig out of an open cast mine that you bake for five days, that you then combine with steel that is five times heavier than a timber building that you kind of like, that you can never adapt because you have to kind of like get jackhammers out. But it takes, you know, it's just crazy, you know, to think that that is better than a material that you can grow that sequesters carbon. Andrew's quite passionate about this, isn't he? (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Now, I think he puts the whole issue of carbon sequestration in mass timber buildings really well. You've got a tree in a kind of like in a managed, uh, biodiverse kind of uh, environment, which is giving out oxygen, cleaning our air, becoming a carbon store. You put that in a building and you lock that carbon in the building. So the more buildings that we build in timber the more carbon that we lock up out of the atmosphere and into our buildings. So this is not only something that isn't very bad, this is also something 
that actually is helping the situation. This is a regenerative kind of process, not, you know, rather than a harmful one. So all of this already sounds really good, but Andrew actually thinks that we need not only to build more in mass timber, but we also need to improve the way in which we work with it. You know, at the moment, when you take down a European spruce, when you cut it down about a metre and a half above the ground, you cut it down, you use that timber, about half, 55%, 60% of the tree is actually used. And the other half generally goes into biomass that power the factories or it's left or the branches are stripped and left in the forest. And when they're left to decompose, they presumably begin emitting that carbon they've been storing. Exactly that. Whereas if it's used in buildings or in objects, pieces of furniture, they're storing it. That's basically carbon sequestration. But we need to get better at that. You know, we need to get better at understanding how we can use more material. I mean, we're doing lots of work with veneers. So differences with a veneer, like with a, when, you, when you make planks from a tree, you're making square things out of a big round thing. This is not very efficient. But when, you're, when you make a veneer, you get a big trunk and you peel it. You know, you're peeling it. And so it spins round and just kind of like comes out flat. And then you're getting like 85% of the tree. So we're looking at lots of different ways of using veneers, etc., etc. I feel like we're getting into the finer details of how to utilise timber as a form of carbon sequestration. But it strikes me that one of the challenges in this arena is metrics. So actually measuring the carbon footprint of producing something as complicated, as multifaceted as a building must be incredibly heavy work. Yeah, it is. And that's also something Andrew thinks the industry could do a lot better on. I think the metrics, uh, the carbon analysis of, of, uh, of building materials really needs some proper governance. Because at the moment, it is a little bit random. What we're realising now is that a lot of the life cycle analysis that was done for timber was done, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And we're still using those figures And actually, a lot has changed since then. And this is something I can jump in on, because life cycle analysis is something I was looking into ahead of this episode. It's effectively a means of quantifying the environmental impact of something from cradle to grave. So, a means of putting some figures to the impact that a product or building may have, from the production of its raw materials, through to transportation, construction or manufacture, usage, and eventual disassembly or deconstruction. Now, these figures may not be 100% exact, but they're still useful information to have. Andrew doesn't seem to think that the industry will see this big shift towards building in massive timber until we kind of really nail that. We need to improve upon these metrics, because at the moment in the timber industry, they've kind of sat around for too long um, and uh, really not done enough about it. So we're, we're working on it, but it is absolutely incredibly important at the moment, because unless you can measure these things... I guess, you know, you can't really make, can't really demonstrate the full comparison. One of the issues surrounding all of this is that carbon sequestration and the environmental impact of construction is so multifaceted. When you're talking about the scale of architecture, there's an awful lot to try and account for at once. So, to try and help illuminate this, I started looking into how these issues play out on the smaller scale of furniture design. So, an arena where you have the exact same issues, but at a level that may be more legible. So, I spoke to someone working in that field. I'm Sean Sutcliffe. My business is Benchmark. And we're furniture makers. So we've been running for close on 40 years. And we're based in the countryside and our west of London. Benchmark are an interesting company. 
they've developed a reputation as being someone you can go to with difficult projects. And they're really pushing what you can do with wood through the rise of technologies like CNC milling, which have allowed for much more fluent, curvaceous forms. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if anybody regards wood as being a, as a, an old fashioned material, I, I would absolutely challenge that. I mean, to me, wood is, is you know, it's the material of the, it's the most modern material of all. It's the material of the future. But I mean, wood's always done amazing things. I mean, you can think of some of those old sailing ships that traveled the world. I mean, they were phenomenal pieces of woodwork. He makes a pretty strong case for using wood. Uh, Where does he stand on this whole issue around carbon sequestration? Sean's pretty clear that the route into that for furniture design is through life cycle analysis. If you take the classic argument between, should we build our buildings in wood or should we build our buildings in steel? The steel industry has a heck lot more money than the wood industry, whereas industries like the wood industry, which is notoriously sort of not a, a, a well, not a wealthy industry, has very little resource. The problem with life cycle assessments and environmental product declarations is that they're quite open to challenge. You know, the data that we input, it's, it's, it's a new, it's a new, it's a new language. It's a new way of counting. And it's very open to interpretation. But Benchmark have been early adopters of life cycle analysis, which they run across their product range. So what what kind of things are they measuring for more precisely? Oh, all sorts of things. So carbon is a big one, definitely. But they're also interested in things like acidification and eutrophication, which is the impact of nitrates on the environment. Oh, yeah. Galena mentioned that as well. Right. So they try and trace all of these aspects. And what they end up with is a long document called an environmental product declaration. I mean, yeah, it's, it sounds, uh, sounds about as complicated as Andrew and his buildings. The data gathering is a little easier just because you're using fewer materials and fewer processes. But you're right. We're still looking at incredibly complex calculations. But they're absolutely essential moving forward. There are, there's a plethora of businesses that claim to be doing great things uh, for their sustainable profiles, great things for the environment. But unless you can actually put some numbers to it, it's meaningless. It's greenwash because anybody can say anything they like. And, and it is extremely hard to challenge unless we back it up with data. And, and so putting metrics to the impacts that our products have is really important. And I look forward to a day hopefully not very far away, when the price of something won't be measured in the price in pounds or dollars or euros, but will be measured in cost in terms of its impact. So he says he's, he's waiting for the day that things will change, but what does he think is standing in the way of that change at present? It's a similar story to Andrew, I think. Cost and a lack of support for those trying to do the right thing. At the moment, it, it's, it is very complex and it's very expensive. You know, produce, the cost of producing an environmental product declaration runs to tens of thousands of pounds. So it's, it's, it's beyond the reach of, of, of many of our small businesses. Or, or if it's not beyond the reach, it's a really major investment. I mean, and we've chosen to make it. But it would, you know, it was an ouch moment when we looked at the cost of doing so. Well, I think it seems like it's a step that everyone in design is going to need to take sometime very soon, though, because the industry can't go on as it is, not paying attention to the impact we're having on the environment. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what Sean would say too. The next big step for designers and architects is to start factoring these ideas into their design process. And there's no better place to start than with wood. It's so ingrained within, within our workshop anyway, that people make sensible choices on this. You know, if you've got a choice as to, you know, how you lay out some boards to cut circular objects, you know, if you stagger them or you use angled ends, you could reduce your your wastage. We're kind of, that's ingrained in our thinking. And we would hope that, that it makes economic sense as well as environmental sense to do so. There's a real goal here, which is about using life cycle assessments as a design tool. That's really a goal. We're, I don't think we're there yet, but it's absolutely the intention of many of us to try, to try and get there. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast about forestry and how it relates to design and architecture. This episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall, and the series has been supported by and made in collaboration with AHEC. In the next episode, we'll be looking at illegal logging, and we'll be joined by Rupert Oliver, a timber market analyst, Constance McDermott, an associate professor in land use and environmental change at the University of Oxford, and the designer's former phantasma.